Welcome to the Jersey Arts Podcast. I'm Susan Walner. I'm joined today by Sarah Kirkland Snyder, a composer, a Princeton native, and a woman, although I'm not sure in that order. Sarah composes poetic, layered, detailed music, often with voice. Her work crosses boundaries, and the concert experience often includes film and other media. Her new work, Hirai, was co-commissioned by the Princeton Symphony Orchestra with the North Carolina Symphony Orchestra. It will have its area premiere in Princeton on May 15th. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. First off, how does it feel to be presenting Hirai in your hometown? Well, it's it's wonderful and, and um, overwhelming. This is a piece about my, my family history and about my father who passed away unexpectedly as I was writing the piece. So there's a lot of emotional resonance for me about the fact that we're presenting it now in the town where I was raised by him, where the town that he loved and presented by the orchestra that he loved. He was a, a huge fan and supporter of the Princeton Symphony, so I know he would be very touched to have this piece presented by them. When you say that it's about him or, or mm. includes him, how do you mean that? So um, it's a piece about our family history in North Carolina. My family, his side of the family, went back 13 generations in North Carolina, or so the, the lore goes. And I spent a lot of my childhood going down to North Carolina and visiting relatives there. Salisbury was the town that he grew up in, and uh, my grandparents lived there until they passed away in the late 90s. And so I spent a lot of time there as a child, and this piece is recalling those memories, the memories that I have of my own childhood experiences down there and the memories that he shared with me, that he told me about while he was growing up there. So it's we decided to create a film component in order to make some of these memories more explicit because music is obviously so abstract, it's hard to suggest certain things in sound. And so um, we created a, a film accompaniment which details some of these memories, these memories of playing in different parts of Salisbury, uh, running around in parks and um, near the railroad and through uh, certain parts of town, and also memories of family gatherings, parties where adults are drinking wine and smoking cigarettes and the kids are running between their legs. And Mark DiChiazza, the filmmaker, did it in a very poetic, non-linear fashion. So it's the result is somewhere, it feels somewhere between memory and a dream, I would say. And did you go to North Carolina to do the filming? Yes, we did. Yeah, we went to Salisbury and shot everything on location. There is one scene, actually, that we shot in our backyard here in Princeton, um, which is the opening scene where my daughter is with um, a frog that she caught in a jar. Um, we just we were practicing with the camera that day and got that footage, and it was so beautiful that we decided to include it. And we thought it was spiritually okay since Princeton was also the town where my dad had spent many, many years. There's many, many rock bands, or I'm thinking of like the Dave Matthews Band or something, where, you know, this very elaborate video has been made to be an accompaniment to the music. Is that something you're seeing more with contemporary classical music? I think it is something that you're seeing more of. I've seen a number of orchestral concerts in the past few years that have incorporated film 
in video. Um, this is the first time I've personally done it with a, a piece that doesn't involve singing. And I'm not sure that I will always do it, uh, but for this piece in particular, it really seemed to make sense because the, the music was meant to be so autobiographical and specifically depicting memories. It seemed to make it make sense to have a visual component. You laughed when I said that you were a woman earlier in the <laughs> intro, and the reason I mentioned that is because the Princeton Symphony Orchestra is uh, sort of having a year of the woman, or year. You know, they're focusing on a lot of women composers. Mm -hmm. Now, is that something that you feel is still unusual? I mean, in this day and age. Well, there are a lot of female composers, but um, there is definitely not still equal representation in the concert hall. You know, I think it, they, they found recently that it was only 1.7% of the music being performed by orchestras today is by women. I mean, that's a really tiny percentage, obviously, considering we're 51% of the population. Uh, women's stories in classical music just haven't been told over the years. They're you know, women, female composers have only recently started to have the opportunity, and in some cases even to study. As recently as 50 years ago, women were still being kept out of conservatories. So classical music is, is incredibly male-dominated and male-represented, and, you know, so it's really something that I think is definitely still an issue, and I think it's great that Princeton Symphony Orchestra was putting together this, this program. You know, I think a lot is changing quickly, but it still needs changing. It's so funny because the tendency is to think there's better, uh, less sexism in the arts. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. I mean, you think of it in science. You know, you're always hearing the science stories, the women who are dropping out of science because the environment is so bad for them. Yeah. But in the yeah. arts, you, I haven't heard those stories as often. Well, I think in arts like uh, literature, you know, women entered earlier because it was something that they could practice and hone their craft at home. You know, they could write on their own, whereas in music, you really have to get your music performed in order to learn and get better at it. And, you know, if you didn't have those opportunities, you couldn't excel as a composer, and women just weren't allowed to have those opportunities. So I think in classical music, it, they, it's really hung behind. I think in other art forms, you know, women have progressed earlier. Hmm. That's interesting. So I read that you worked as a paralegal for a while. And I'm wondering, no, I'm just wondering, mm -hmm. you know, was this an obvious path for you to become a composer? Yeah, it was something that I was always doing on my own, but didn't share with anybody. And then after college, I, I had some friends in, in downtown experimental theater in New York, and they had, they knew that I wrote music and they asked me to write some music for their plays. And so I was enjoying doing that. But at the same time, yeah, my job was working as a legal assistant with uh, the Center for Reproductive Law and Policy, I was thinking about going into public interest law. And so, but I found that I was taking off more and more unpaid days to work on the music. And I, my boss was getting frustrated because I was saying, oh, can I have more time off this week? I don't, you, you don't have to pay me for it, but I just need the time to work on the music. And she was like, you might want to reevaluate your career, <laughs> career choice. You know, it seems like your heart is more in the music. And and she was right, it definitely was. It took some time for me to get there, and I was definitely a late committer, a late starter, I guess you could say, even though I, I had written music since I was a little kid. Hmm. Yeah, well, I think that that's not that uncommon, is it? No, I think, I think particularly for women, you know, at least of my generation or older, because, you know, being a composer just wasn't something in the, on the radar, you know, for women. Um, 
I mean, I did have some piano teachers who knew that I wrote music, but they, for instance, didn't encourage me. They didn't say like, oh, you write music, you should work on this more or, you know, think about taking a class in music theory. Um, I think maybe if I'd been a boy, that might have been a more obvious recommendation. Although who knows, you know, that's not to suggest that they were sexist in any way. It's just that it wasn't in the consciousness, you know, I mean, Growing up in my music classrooms, there were laminated pictures of all the male composers through history, not a single female, you know, and so you just kind of grow up thinking that that's not an available option. It wasn't until I really actively started investigating the world of contemporary classical music that I discovered people like Meredith Monk, you know, Joan Tower, some other lesser lesser known to the broader public, lesser known names of, of women composers. What are some of your other musical influences? I mean, you, you've just mentioned some of the um, women contemporary classical composers that have influenced you and that you had to discover. Mm-hmm. What, what about other fields of music? Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up loving pop music as much as I loved classical music. My parents only played uh, pop music around the house, so I grew up with the Beatles and Fleetwood Mac and Elton John, and, and then I got into some other uh, female popular musicians uh, on my own like Joni Mitchell and Ricky Lee Jones and then as I got into high school I got into the more like alternative and punk popular music and discovered PJ Harvey she became a huge influence for me and as I got into college it became about bands like Slater Kinney and um, gosh now I'm drawing a blank but there was the whole like riot girl scene uh, a, a singer-songwriter named Sarah Duger, who I really admired. And, um, yeah, I started realizing that there were a lot of female voices in popular music that whose music I really loved and identified with, and they became, for a certain, in a certain way, they became role models for me as well. And so I think when I, when I got out of, well, I should, I should digress for a moment to say that when I got really into writing classical music, you know, went to graduate school, I felt that I had to divest myself of the popular music influence. There were definitely pressures from teachers, and I think the, the community in general, you sort of got the message that, that you should separate your popular music influence and focus on the classical heritage and, and focus on the rigor and the craft and all of that, and that didn't really involve popular music influence. So I did that, but when I graduated from from Yale, I was commissioned by Ellen McLaughlin, a playwright, to write the song cycle Penelope with her. And for that, she thought that it would be good for me to bring in some of my popular music influence because her text was very direct and plain spoken and, and folksy in a certain way. and. Um, also, we had had many conversations about some of my frustrations with classical music, and she was saying, you know, I know you have all of this this popular music influence, and maybe this is an opportunity for you to get back in touch with that. So anyway, so I did, and that was the beginning of me opening myself back up to that popular music influence and finding a way to reincorporate it into my music. Well, I would think that people would respond to that <laughs> because, like, everyone listens to everything, mm-hmm. you know? And if you're listening true, to classical yeah. music, you're certainly listening to popular music. The other might not be so true. Well, it's interesting, actually, because there, there are a lot of classical composers who grew up really not listening to popular music. Really? Yeah, I had okay, friends in sorry. graduate. No, it's fascinating. <laughs> I mean, I felt the same way. I had friends in school who 
you know, they said, oh, my parents only played classical music. And I was like, but didn't you hear it on the bus to school, pop music or at the grocery store? And they were like, yeah, I just didn't have ears for that. I wasn't, you know, attuned to think about it. And I didn't watch MTV or this or that. So, wow. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was impossible to avoid. You know, that was the world I grew up in was so informed by popular music. And I felt like I would have had to have lived in a cave to have not been exposed to it. But, you know, there is still some in some pockets, some old school snobbery in the classical world about popular music. And that was a lot of why we actually started the record label that we started, my friends and I, because we wanted for composers to feel comfortable incorporating all of those influences and not feeling that they had to divest themselves from that. So tell me about this record label. So that's called New Amsterdam, and um, we founded it in 2007, and it's a Brooklyn-based label that really seeks out um, music that digests all of these different influences and brings them together into something new, something where the influences are seamless. So you can't really say, oh, this is just pop music with strings or classical music with an electronic beat or whatever. Music that has fully digested these influences to create something new. So now you live in Princeton and you have your own family, you have children. Mm -hmm. What kind of uh, musical education are they getting? I mean, the reason I'm asking that is it seems like you really aspired to it and wanted it. It wasn't something that was pressured on you at all. The, yeah. your musical education yeah. unlike you hear the stories of the people who are made to practice and, right 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 and, and it sounds like you just very naturally wanted that so how are you yeah. how are you dealing with your children in that respect yeah so I, I think we're taking a sort of similar tack to my parents like 75 percent of my parents philosophy which was to completely let me do everything on my own and and then I think we're trying to add in a 25 percent of, of guidance because of course kids don't know what's out there and I mean my parents were so non-musical they're wonderfully supportive but you know had zero background in music and I don't think they ever thought about you know classical music as being something that living breathing people made you know and so I think you know my husband and I both being composers we want to if our kids are interested in that to guide them to, to the places the resources that would help them develop that craft, you know? So yeah, I think if our kids show interest in studying music the way that my husband and I showed interest, I think we will guide them towards composition lessons or theory. Um, My daughter, for instance, is constantly making up songs the the same way that I did at her age. She's constantly singing tunes and improvising music. And my son is more of a natural rebel. (laughs) Whatever we suggest, he goes in the opposite direction. So I think for us, it'll be a little more snaky. You know, for him, if he wants to do it, we'll be very careful about not pressuring him so that he doesn't feel like it's something he has to do. It's that tricky balance of showing them what's available in terms of study and giving them the tools to develop, you know, and the the knowledge that, that practice really makes you get better and that magical things can happen with when, when you practice. So it's a mix of those approaches. Sarah, thank you so much for talking today. Thank you for having me, yeah. The Princeton Symphony Orchestra will give Sarah Kirkland Snyder's Hirai its Northeast premiere on Sunday, May 15th at Richardson Auditorium. 
Penelope, Sarah's critically acclaimed song cycle for mezzo and chamber ensemble, will be performed on May 17th in Princeton. For more about these concerts and other Meet the Composer events, visit PrincetonSymphony.org. For more about all of the arts in New Jersey, visit JerseyArts.com. I'm Susan Wallner for the Jersey Arts Podcast. Thanks for listening. The Jersey Arts Podcast is made possible by the New Jersey State Council on the Arts, supporting excellence and engagement in the arts since 1966.